You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we're in Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to read beginning at verse 1. We'll read down to verse 14. Matthew 22 beginning with verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been called to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been called... Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were called were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, call to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests, But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Good our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, our hearts are heavy when we see the chaos that is in this world because of sin. When we see a people who have been given so many blessings by you throughout the ages, still blind to the truth concerning Your Son. Along with the Apostle Paul, Lord, we, we desire to see them saved. We call out to You and ask You to open their eyes to grant salvation. Lord, we also long for true justice to be seen in this world. We know, we are mindful that the One who will bring that justice is the one whom we long to see return. We've just sung about it. Come, Lord Jesus. And we know that until He returns, this world will still be full of injustice. We gather today, Lord, as Your church. We are in need of what we see in these verses. We need what we see in these verses. We ask You to feed our souls, to encourage our hearts, to build us up in the faith. There are sin issues represented in this room, I'm quite sure, that need to be addressed and turned from, and in that way your church washed and purified. We ask for that. 
I'm also sure there are people here today who are discouraged and lack strength. And I pray for them that today would be encouraging and strengthening to them. Some here today who are confused in need of guidance, Lord, would you grant wisdom even as your word goes forth? Some sitting here among us who don't know you and need salvation, we pray that you would open their eyes and grant them faith in your Son. Help me, Lord, to preach. Help us to listen and glorify your great name among us. As your word goes forth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The sinfulness of sin. Do you think about that very often? The sinfulness of sin. What makes sin sinful? What makes sin outrageous? What it is about sin that deserves the wrath of God. What it is about sin that calls out for retribution. Our Lord is giving a series of judgment parables. This is the third one. He's been confronted by the religious leaders of the Jews. They demand to know by what authority He does what He does. And He responds with three parables. Each of these parables exposing their true spiritual condition, exposing the fact that they stand before the judgment of God and deserving of the judgment of God. But as he gives these parables, he's also giving us insight into the sinfulness of sin. Sin is always outrageous in at least three directions. Sin is outrageous because it is irreverent. God is holy, holy, holy. And he hates all that is contrary to his nature, his character, and his will. Sin is what God hates. And every sin we've ever committed and every sin being committed in this world is before the face of that holy God. All sin is unrighteousness. It's irreverence. It's refusal to care about what God loves and what God hates. Makes it outrageous. It's outrageous because it is defiant. There is defiance in every sin committed. It is an attack on the honor of God. It is an attack on the authority of God. God deserves honor, respect, submission from His creatures. And so when we sin, we refuse that to our God. We refuse to submit. We refuse to obey. We refuse to give heed to what He's commanded. Sin is outrageous because it is defiant. It is rebellious. But sin is also outrageous because it is ungrateful. Every sin ever committed is a sin against love. It is a sin against the goodness of God. It is a sin against the kindness of God. It is a sin against the patience of God. God is good to His creation. He is good to this world of humanity. Every day the sun is shining on people who curse the name of God. He provides for people who don't deserve to exist. And in that way, His general love for the world is on display all around, all the time. When men sin, they treat the goodness of God as though it's worthless. In sin is 
an astounding pride, arrogance, presumptuousness. Men acting as if God owes them something when what He owes them is judgment. Sin is sinful. Sin is outrageous. In the three parables I mentioned, He has demonstrated the outrageous nature of the behavior of Israel's religious leaders. In one of the parables, out of their own mouths, they declare the kind of people being described in the story as wretches. Wretches. This is what they are. Wretches. And they are daring wretches. Because as they hear Christ tell the story of the vineyard, they declare that what those people deserve is to be destroyed. Well, they've described their own just return for their behavior. They deserve to be destroyed. So they are not just wretches, they are daring wretches. And they are ungrateful wretches doing what they do in the face of amazing patience. One of the things you see in all three parables is the patience on display in those stories. So our Lord is declaring their condition and He's warning them. And all of this is the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. When you ask what is taking place, what is taking place from the time of John the Baptist until the very day where Jesus is standing in the temple on this Tuesday and He's teaching and they are They are responding with hatred and murderous plans and thoughts, and they are questioning His authority. What is taking place? It is the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. This is exactly what Jesus was able to tell His disciples would take place. We're going to go to Jerusalem. There we're going to be mistreated. We're going to suffer. I'm going to die. He's able to tell His disciples about all of this because all of this is fulfilling the decrees of God. The outcome of all of this is going to be judgment, but also mercy. Judgment and mercy. And we see that this morning in the parable he told about a wedding feast, a royal wedding feast. Now I mentioned it, I want to underscore it. This is in response to the question, by what authority do you do what you do? He is demonstrating his authority because he's able to assess these men That's what he's doing. He's issuing a judgment. They don't know it, but they're standing before the judge of all the earth. They're standing before the very one. They will stand before at the great white throne judgment. And while they're still breathing on this side of eternal damnation, he is graciously telling them who they are and what they deserve and where they're headed. And that if they don't repent... They're going to meet with an everlasting judgment. In the story we're going to study this morning, you come to the end of the parable, what do you see? Someone bound hand and foot and thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is assessing them, judging them, and warning them. And all of this is gracious because their heart has not stopped beating. They're still taking breath into their lungs. There is still the opportunity to turn and be saved. We're going to look at this parable this morning under four headings. You can jot them down if you want to. Number one, a king's invitation dishonored. A king's invitation dishonored, verses 1 through 6. Second, a king's anger vented, 
That's verse 7. A king's anger vented. And then a king's provision extended. This is the mercy we're going to look at. A king's provision extended, verses 8 through 12. And then verses 13 and 14, a king's sovereignty demonstrated. A king's invitation dishonored, a king's anger vented, a king's provision extended, a king's sovereignty demonstrated. Notice, first of all, the king's invitation dishonored. Verse 1, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been called to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who had been called, Behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. First thing we want to identify is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to. He's giving us a story that demonstrates something about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, in this context, I believe it speaks of the dominion of God and His Christ. These rejection parables have to do with the realm of salvation. They answer the question, who are truly God's people? To whom does salvation and its blessings belong? Or to look at it from the standpoint of response, we could ask, and the parable answers this question, who has truly responded with obedient faith? Remember the first story about the two sons? One son said he would not obey, but eventually did. The other son said he would obey, but he never did. What is true, obedient faith to God's joyful presentation of His Son and the invitation to enter into the blessings that are found in His Son? What does it look like to respond with obedient faith to that joyful invitation? Who is existing under the rule of God's Messiah. Who has truly embraced Him? That's what is in view. John MacArthur commented, although they had many perverted ideas about the kingdom of heaven, because the term heaven was so often used as a substitute for the covenant name of God, Yahweh, most Jews would have understood that it was synonymous with the kingdom of God and represented the realm of God's sovereign rule. There are past, present, and future, as well as temporal and eternal aspects of the kingdom, but it's not restricted to any era or period of redemptive history. It is the continuing, ongoing sphere of God's rule by grace. In a narrower sense, the phrase is also used in Scripture to refer to God's dominion of redemption, His divine program of gracious salvation. And then MacArthur says this, as Jesus uses the phrase here, it specifically represents the spiritual community of God's redeemed people, those who are under His Lordship in a personal and unique way because of their trust in His Son. Close quote. And I agree. This is describing what it means to belong to God, to be a part of His family, to be a part of that community, 
to have come under the rule of God by faith in His Son. S. Lewis Johnson, he's going to quote Matthew Henry at the beginning of his statement, but this is S. Lewis Johnson. I love the fact that he talks about that this is a parable that puts salvation forward in the terms of love. Listen to what he said. He said, Matthew Henry in his commentary says, A feast is for love and for laughter, for fullness and for fellowship. And what a beautiful expression that is of this parable because it is a marriage feast. And a marriage feast is for love. And the simple meaning of all of this is that God has this grand object in view of providing for His Son a group of people. In fact, I think we can say two great groups of people who will enter into such a relationship with Him, the nation Israel and the Gentiles. The nation and the nations. They shall enter into the relationship with union with Him expressed by marriage and designed to celebrate the fact that there's a love relationship that exists between the King and the Son and the guests at the wedding feast. A feast is for love. And when we come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, the relationship is a relationship of love. It is the love of the Father that brings us to the Son, and it is the response of love which I think motivates all of our true service for our great God, close quote. And he's right. Do you know that relationship with God? Have you ever responded to the love of God that invites you to the blessings found in His Son so that you have loved God by loving His Son? You have put your faith in His Son and you now have been saved, forgiven. You have fellowship with God and that is a fellowship of love. Do you know that in your own life? The kingdom he's talking about is the kingdom that was promised throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. Again, there's more than one facet of the kingdom. As you know, there's a future aspect still on its way, has not yet arrived. A literal earthly kingdom of a thousand years. Christ Himself will usher that in. But this kingdom has been promised throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. And in that way, prepared for by the Old Testament Scriptures. This is the kingdom that was announced by John the Baptist. This is the kingdom proclaimed by, offered by Jesus and His disciples. In fact, the king is present as he's talking to these men in the temple. The king is present, which means the kingdom is right there. It's near as His presence offered in Him. The Messiah was promised. Now He was here. Salvation sacrifice was promised. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's here. Matthew 4.23, And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Luke 4.43, our Lord said this, but He said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. He comes into the world... He declares Himself as King. He comes into the world. He declares the reality of the kingdom which is entered into by salvation. So this is the question before us in this parable. Who really belongs to that kingdom? Who responds with joyful obedience to God's good news concerning His Son? Who loves the Son that the Father loves? And this also includes, of course, the promised kingdom that's coming. 
who will be in that kingdom when it's ushered in? Who really belongs to that kingdom? So you have a king giving a wedding feast for his son. I want you to notice this wedding feast has been planned, and the people being invited in our verses had already been invited. You see this in verse 3, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been called to the wedding feast, to call those who had been called, that is, they had already been invited. This was customary. Wedding feasts were planned in advance, invitations sent out in advance, and then when the feast is ready, a summons is given. The people are, are then called. The people who had been called are called to come to the wedding feast. People are notified. And, and in this story, what you have is an unbelievable privilege. This isn't just a wedding feast. This is a royal wedding feast. It is the king who is inviting these people to come and celebrate the marriage of his son. The crown prince is getting married, and you've been invited to be a part of this feast. This story is meant to emphasize the privilege, the honor of the invitation. It is a royal invitation. And yet, despite the unbelievable nature of the privilege, the first call is rejected. Look at verse 3. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been called to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Unwilling to come. You, listen, you don't do this. You don't refuse a king's invitation. You wouldn't even do that to a good friend. You wouldn't do that to your governor. There's no way you do this to the sovereign of the nation. The king has invited you to come, and yet these people are unwilling to come. This is outrageous disrespect, right? The sinfulness of sin pictured in their unwillingness to come to such an invitation. What dishonor is being shown to the king? This really amounts to a rejection of his role, a rejection of his authority, a rejection of his honor. There's an irreverence in it. There's a defiance in it. There's an ungratefulness in it. Amazing disrespect. It really amounts to treason. Not treating the king like he's the king. So what would you expect to be on the other side of that rejection? Immediate retribution, right? But that's not what you find. In verse 4, you find an something just as astounding. It's astounding they would reject the invitation. Just as astounding is how the king responds. This is not what you would expect. Verse 4, again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been called, behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. What does he do? He issues another call. He issues another invitation. But this time he does something additional. He describes everything that has been prepared. 
It's as if the king says, listen, if you won't come because of what you would give, that is, you're, you're honoring me, if you won't come because of my honor, come because of what I'm going to give you. This is what you're going to, to have when you come. This is what I've prepared. This is what is ready. Everything's ready. You see there in verse 4, I've prepared my dinner. That particular word for dinner speaks of an early meal. It's used for breakfast. It's used for a, a noon meal. This kind of a wedding feast, as you know, would have gone on for days. So what's being talked about here is the first meal, the one that sets the whole celebration off. And in fact, when you get to the end of the parable, it's nighttime. So this has gone on for a while. The man's going to be cast into the outer darkness. The point is, great blessing is offered. If you'll just come celebrate the king's son, you're going to meet with great blessing. Everything is ready. Nothing for you to bring but yourself. A high privilege has been extended to you. The king doesn't respond with immediate retribution. The king responds with amazing patience and kindness. So how do you respond the second time? Well, look at what they did, verse 5. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. In the face of such kindness, in the face of such patience, they respond in the very same character on display in their first response. They reject the king's invitation. And you'll notice it's described in two ways. The first way it's described is indifference. They paid no attention. They went their own way. They went about their everyday business. One goes to his farm. The other goes to his business. It's just life as usual. It's as if the invitation was never issued. When a king invites you, it's a summons. It has the force of command. But they go as if they've not heard a summons. Absolute indifference. But there's another response on display, and that is hostility. Because others, verse 6, seized his slaves as though they're agitated by the continual invitation, somehow offended by the kindness of this king, seize his slaves, mistreat them, and even murder some of them. By the way, I want to tell you at this point, we'll see it, but in verse 7, both are going to meet with judgment. Let's for a moment understand the application of this parable. It has to do with the gospel. It has to do with the offer of God's Son. And I want to say to you today, dear friend, listen, you might imagine that your indifference to the gospel is somehow not as worthy of judgment as hostility to the gospel. But the ones who would seize his slaves, mistreat his slaves, and murder his slaves will be judged right along with the people who just went on about their daily business. Indifference to the invitation is hateful to the king, even as hostility to the invitation is hateful to the king. What I'm saying to you is don't imagine that you can live your life out just ignoring the gospel and somehow escape judgment. You will not escape judgment. The one who says, let me get back to you on that. 
Let me just think about that some more. Not because you don't understand the gospel, but because you're not willing to relinquish your life to the king. You're not willing to respond to his summons. You're not willing to take his glorious, gracious invitation. You're not willing to enter into the blessings found in the celebration of his son. And you say, I'll get back to you on it. You just go about your daily business. You do understand you are one heartbeat away from your damnation. How foolish it is to put off the summons of the gospel. So the king's invitation dishonored. Which brings us to our second point, verse 7. The king's anger vented. Verse 7, but the king was enraged. It is outrageous. It is enraging what is taking place, and he is enraged. And so he sends his armies and destroys those murderers and sets their city on fire. What does a rejection of this invitation deserve? It deserves wrath. That's the word that's used, or gizo, which means to be very angry. The God who loves this world that he created is also a God of justice, and he is an angry God. He's a loving God, but He is angry with sinners every day. And you refuse His gracious invitation of blessing. You refuse His gracious invitation to mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation. And you will meet with the wrath of that king. And so He sends His armies in the story, and He destroys their city with fire why the mention of a, of a city, their city? I think because He's our Lord through this story is already pointing forward to the looming destruction that takes place in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when their rejection of their Messiah and God's rejection of them is made unmistakable. When the temple is destroyed and their city is razed, when those beautiful buildings of the temple complex, there's not one stone left upon another. When this happens, God's judgment is now seen not just in words, but in rubble. I think that's what he's talking about. Some commentators would say no, but I think it is. And if you say why, well, I ask why the mention of, of their city set on fire? Because think about this, just taking the stories that's being given are we to think that the, that the city of the citizens isn't the city of the king? Does he destroy his own city? Or if you go, well, wait a second, these invitations have gone out to various villages and towns and all of that. Well, then are we to believe that the only ones who disobeyed the invitation, invitation the only ones who showed the disrespect, they all belong to one city? All the other cities were fine, but this one city all contained the people? No, I think the reason why there's a mention of a city is because it is a quiet warning about what Jesus is going to make explicit eventually when you get further on in Matthew, and he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's already warning about that right here. So the king's invitation dishonored, what that is followed by, verse 7, is the king's wrath, the judgment of the king. But in this wrath, there's also mercy. Because in verses 8 through 10, we see a king's provision extended. Verse 8, Then he said to his slaves, 
the wedding is ready. But those who were called were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, call to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. The same thing we saw in the parable of the vineyard we see here, and that is what is offered to the first group is given to a new group. Those who were not moved by the invitation, those who thought themselves worthy of such an invitation, I mean, they weren't humbled by it, they weren't grateful for it, and perhaps those whom others would have thought worthy of the invitation have now proven themselves unworthy of the invitation. In verse 8, but those who were called were not worthy. Proven unworthy. So what does the king do? He calls anyone and everyone who is willing to come. What was offered to a select group is now offered to the world, as it were. He sends these slaves to the main highways where all people would travel. People with reputations for good, people with reputations for evil. Anyone, everyone. All are invited. All are called. Because the king will have what his son deserves. A wedding hall full of people who respond to his invitation joyfully, willingly, obediently. People who will honor his son. Which leads to the fourth thing we see, and that is a king's sovereignty demonstrated. Look at verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, remember the wedding hall now is filled with dinner guests, verse 10. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The invitation has gone out without discrimination. Anyone who wants to come, everyone who wants to come. However, no one will be in that wedding feast who isn't dressed properly. You have to have wedding garments on. Some have said perhaps what we're to envision here is because these people were called hastily, you go out to the highways, to the intersections where people travel, and you're calling them in. Perhaps what we're to envision here is that the king has given out these wedding garments, and this one person has disregarded what he's been given and chosen not to put it on. There's really no very scant historical evidence that something like that would have happened in that day. I don't think it's required. If it turns out one day we find out that's true, we'll still be on good ground with what I'm about to say. Because the point is, even if they went home and cleaned up and came in wedding clothes, either way you go with this, what you have is someone who's responded to the invitation in a way that's superficial. They've responded to the invitation, but they haven't honored the king and his son. They don't think enough about the king and his son to even change their clothes. They've come in a way that is not fitting. They've come in a way that the king will not receive. You see, the call goes out to all, but the king is sovereign. 
That is to say, no one is in that wedding feast whom he hasn't chosen to be there. He can choose. He walks through. He examines. He sees someone not dressed properly. He has that man cast out, bound up. I mean, this is criminal what he has done. Casts him out into the outer darkness and finishes, Jesus does this story, finishes by saying many are called, but few are chosen. What is on display is the sovereignty of that king. Brings us to a fifth point that I didn't mention, but now we'll walk through it together. That is the interpretation of the parable. The elements are clear, especially not just looking here, but then you synthesize this with what the rest of the Scriptures teach us. This is unmistakable. So let's talk about the elements of the parable and what they speak to. The Father in this parable, the King, who is that? That is God the Father. The son in this parable, the crown prince, the one whom the father wants celebrated. Who is that? That's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. The invitations before the call. They call those who had been called. What was the invitation before the call? That is the Old Testament revelation that would have prepared them for this wedding feast, should have prepared them to meet their king, to have recognized him once the invitations begin to be offered to receive Him as the King and to celebrate Him as the King. The Old Testament promises and prophecies preceded the arrival of Jesus and then the summons to receive Him as Israel's promised King. The first call that goes out that is rejected, they're uninterested, unwilling to come, verse 3. What does that represent? Well, that would represent... The ministry of John the Baptist and Christ Himself and the apostles as Christ is on the earth and the, the call is going forth to recognize who He is. Those are the first slaves. The second call rejected. The patience of the King. And by the way, some of this you could even look back throughout the ages and see this. I mean, how often God has sent His servants to address Israel, how often God has sent His servants to declare truth to them, how often they have taken lightly the patience of their God. But thinking about the ministry of Christ on the earth, you do understand there was a call to receive Jesus as King that was issued after His crucifixion, after His resurrection, after His ascension. Go listen to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3. Read it and hear it in your mind's eye. See it in your mind's eye. Listen to what he says. Acts 3 verse 13. Peter declares this, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know that there was a healing that had taken place. 
And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, listen to this, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Do you know what you just heard? If you will in mass turn from your sins and receive your king, he'll return. Now you can have him. Will you listen? And while a handful of thousands responded to that invitation, the nation as a whole rejected it all over again. Right now, through the sovereign plans and providence of our God, there is a nation Israel that exists. And that nation is almost completely unbelieving. I read just yesterday these chants that were being translated about looking to the east and remembering Zion as though the Messiah has never come. Still blind. Praise be to God, there will be an outpouring of salvation upon ethnic Israel at the end of the age. They will look upon Him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. But on this day, as Jesus tells this parable, you're meeting with an outrageous rejection. And after they kill the author of life, after he's been raised from the dead, after there's an empty tomb, after people continue to be healed in their presence through the ministry of the apostles, when the unbelief is outrageous and unexplainable from a human point of view, outside of the Bible's explanation, which is man's blindness and sin. They go on in their rebellion. They go on in their ungratefulness. They go on in their irreverence. See, there's a second call. Rejected. Preparation, but they're not prepared. First call, they won't come. Second call, not only do they reject it with indifference in some of them, they're murderous. They kill the servants. What about the judgment from the king? And then the merciful extending of the call to the highways where all the people are traveling. What is that? The rejection of Israel and a turning to the Gentiles. Under the old covenant, God's plan for reaching the world with the good news of His glorious name and His merciful offer of salvation was the nation Israel. That was the primary means. No longer is that the case. Jesus said, I will build my church. God's call to the world, God's display of His name is upon this people, that is His church all over the world for this age. 
God will once again in the future turn His attention to the nation Israel. All the promises made to the nation will be fulfilled in an ethnic Israel, every single one. But for now, there's a rejection. There's a turning away from Israel. There's a hardness upon Israel. But as the book of Romans says, that has resulted in riches for the world. And it's not plan B, it's plan A. All of this fulfilling God's decrees from all eternity. All of this God's salvation plan. Acts 13, verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. This is Paul and Barnabas. Paul, a Jew, preaching to Jews. And he says, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside, listen to these words, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. In this parable, what does he say about the people first invited? They were not worthy, verse 8. What does Paul say to his fellow Jewish brethren according to the flesh? Since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, Paul says, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And that turning, that shift from the nation Israel to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ was made unmistakable when in A.D. 70, the temple in Jerusalem are destroyed. Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The call, the invitation, the wedding invitation out to anybody and everyone, what is that? the present age we're living in where the gospel goes out without discrimination. Are you thirsty? Come. Come and drink from the waters of life. Do you know your sins to be like scarlet? They'll be white as wool. Come. That's what's going on in this age. We preach the gospel without discrimination. The general call of God goes out to the world through the preaching of the gospel. Matthew 8, verse 8, But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, this is a Gentile man who's saying these things. Jesus said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which speaks to the expulsion of the one who lacked the wedding garments. Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Remember that first parable, you have the two sons. And the first son said, I will not go, but he went. And the second son said, I will go, but he didn't go. And Jesus said, which one obeyed his father? You see, it is possible, isn't it, to give a superficial answer that sounds obedient, 
but it isn't. It's possible to respond to an invitation superficially. You come, you're there in body, but your heart doesn't honor the king or his son. What do these wedding clothes represent? They represent what the king will accept. They represent a righteousness that is not your own. They represent the clean garments that you must receive as a gift from God through faith in His Son. If you go to your grave thinking, well, I've lived a good life and I've tried to be a good person, you count yourself worthy of the invitation. You're going to discover you are unworthy of the invitation. But if you trust, if you receive God's joyful offer of the blessings that are found in His Son and you respond to His Son with faith, then you'll experience a change of clothes in the the form of a gift of righteousness that God imputes to your account on the basis of faith. Justification is by faith alone. It's by grace alone. It's a faith that you weren't born with. God grants it through regeneration. It's in Christ alone. It's trusting in Christ. Look to Christ and your sins are forgiven and you're clothed with His own righteousness and alien righteousness. You don't explain it. You don't accrue it. It's given to you in full at the moment you believe and then you're fit to be in the King's presence forever. And you'll share in the blessings found in the celebration of His Son. R.C. Sproul, in the way that only R.C. Sproul could do it, talks about commentators who aren't willing to say that these garments is the imputed righteousness of Christ, represents that imputed righteousness. Listen to what he said. He said, what is the proper clothing to which the parable was pointing? Augustine, the 5th century bishop of Hippo in North Africa, was convinced that it is righteousness, it is the righteousness of Christ. If we are not clothed in that righteousness, we will not be welcome at the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven. Because all of our righteousness, the Bible says, is like filthy rags, Isaiah 64, verse 6. We can enter the kingdom of heaven only if we are dressed in the righteousness of Jesus, which is imputed to all who believe, Zechariah 3, verses 3 and 4. Other scholars have disagreed with Augustine, saying that there is no direct indication in the parable that the proper attire for the wedding feast pointed to the righteousness of Christ. Well, I read these commentators and think, what's wrong with you? Have you ever seen Harsey's phone that clip? What's wrong with you people? That's, I can hear him in my head. What's wrong with you? What else can it refer to? When the king noticed the man in his improper clothes and questioned him about it, what did he say? Did he say, I'm so sorry, your highness. I was so busy that I had no time to go home and get dressed. I came directly here in response to the invitation from your servants. Did he say, what difference does it make how I'm dressed? Why are you so uppity, O king? I don't think I should have to get dressed to the nines in order to be welcomed at your party. No. Jesus said that the man could find nothing to say. Rather, he was speechless. This is consistent with what the Bible universally teaches about human responses at the day of judgment, where every human being will be brought to the tribunal of God and the sins of every one of them will be made manifest We are told in Scripture that every person will be silent before Him. Psalm 76, verses 8 and 9, Zephaniah 1, 7, Zechariah 2, 13. When we stand before an omniscient God 
who knows everything we have ever done or thought. What excuse can we give Him? Anyone who stands before God at that last judgment will at least have the good sense to keep his or her mouth shut because there will be nothing to say. Can I ask you, friend, isn't it interesting? The king in this parable greets this man with the word friend. You see, it could be, could have been different. You're going to receive what your dishonor deserves. You're going to receive what your defiance deserves. It could have been different. Friend, didn't you hear the invitation? Didn't you know what was available? Didn't you know who was issuing it? I want to ask you, friend, one day will you have to stand before the living God, your Creator, with your mouth closed? Because He knows you? Or have you opened your mouth and confessed Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only Savior given to people, the only one in whom you can be right with God, the one whose own righteousness became yours when you trusted in Him, is your answer to the Holy King's examination of you that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and His blood has paid for all your sins. Is your answer Jesus? If you stand before your Creator and your answer is you, you will be bound hand and foot and cast out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If your answer is Jesus, welcome to the wedding feast where everything is already prepared. Have you trusted in Christ? And would you believe right where you are right now? The gospel always comes to us with the force of command. This is no common invitation. This is the invitation from a king. It's a command to turn from all you're involved in and all you're doing and all that could call for your attention to turn from everything you've trusted in and give your life to Christ. Have you ever heard it with the force of command? So that instead of irreverence, there was reverence. Instead of defiance, there was honor. Instead of presumption, there was gratefulness. And with the love that the Father has for His Son, you embraced His Son with humility of heart, the joy found in the Father Himself, you embraced His Son for life. Would you trust in Christ today? And for every child of God, can't you see what the King has done for you? Many are called, but few are chosen. We sang about it this morning. The one whom you've loved, loved you first. You turned from your sins and trusted in Him because you were chosen to turn from your sins and trust in Him. Oh, what love is the story of your life and salvation. Therefore, what gratefulness should be in our hearts as the Lord's church when we think about what Jesus has done for us. And the church would say, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You.
for Your glorious Gospel, for the good news of Your kingdom, for the good news of Your Son, for the good news of Your grace. Thank You that by Your grace we heard it and we received it. And with the obedience of faith, we obeyed the command of the Gospel and You have saved us forever. Thank You that our future is certain. We have a hope. It's not what might be. It's what we know will be. And until then, Lord, strengthen us to be faithful with that Gospel and to declare it at all the intersections of this world, to issue Your invitation. As slaves, that's what we're called to do. To issue Your invitation to the world, knowing that all those whom You've chosen will respond, not superficially, but genuinely. And one day, the wedding hall will be filled with guests as we celebrate Your Son, whom You've set before us with joy. We give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen.